Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Negroni talk. It's amazing. It's incredible. Um, here at lovely Ombra, organised by Fourth Space, as Hugh mentioned, and Rob Bain. Um, so nice to see so many people. It's sold out. Apparently there is football tonight, but who knew? <laughs> no, it's so good to see so many friendly faces and a few unfriendly faces too. Um, anyway, so my name is Alba Pani. I'm an architect. I'm also head of strategic planning and design at Walden Forest. Waltham Forest, not Walthamstow Forest, uh, just as a reminder. Um, yeah, fun fact, I used to work in this building, actually, about 11 years ago, so that's when I first met Hugh and Steve and Paolo, uh, when we used to pass along the long corridor to the toilets. Uh, <laughs> memories. Are the, to- are the toilets the same? Are they nicer? The toilets? The same? Yeah. They're the same. Okay, cool. <laughs> good, I'm glad that's been confirmed. So good. Okay, so anyway, back to the reason that we're here. We are here to debate. Very mature title, this. Vernacular, schmamacular. <laughs> so, uh, well done, lad. Uh, vernacular, vernacular architecture. What is it? Who decides? And why? Uh, I don't know, but we're going we're gonna to discuss it. And because I am a consummate professional, I did do a little bit of research beforehand, so I'm just going to bring that up on my phone. Um, Okay, so I did a bit of research. According to Wikipedia, vernacular architecture is building done, great grammar, building done outside any academic tradition and without professional guidance. Don't know what the ARB would have to say about that, but I don't think anyone has ever met anyone from ARB socially, so that's going to be fine. Um, uh, It goes on, it goes on. Uh, As of 1986, even among scholars publishing in the field, the exact boundaries of vernacular have not been clear. So you can see that we are breaking new ground here. Uh, we're going to be discussing things that have been in contention for at least since uh, 1986. So that's pretty impressive. Um, and that's probably a good moment to bring in our speakers. So they are scattered around the room. I'm just going to I'm going to introduce them, and then I'm going to give them a little start of the ten. Is that still on? Yeah, a little start of the ten question to get us going. But I'll just introduce them all first. So India. Block, India Block, who is a writer, editor, and deputy editor of Disenio, and she has a particular interest in how architecture, design, and technology intersects with futurism, politics, housing, human rights, LBGT, LBGTQ, sorry, issues, sustainability, and anti-racism. So, uh, perhaps a little clap for India. I think it's nice to give everyone a clap. Um, and we have Joanne, who I can't see right now. 
Okay, back here, yeah. Joanne is a planner and an urban designer and a partner at David Locke Associates, where she focuses on planning and master planning complex brown and green sites. And she is co-chair of the Oxford Design Review Panel and chair of the Folkestone and High Place Panel, so very much our non-London perspective. So welcome, Joanne. And then through the wreath, we have John Norden. So, John, John, you were quite hard to, to intro succinctly, which is a polite way of saying that when I asked you for two lines, you sent me 500 words. So, John, John has a background in architectural practice. He is a creative director for Igloo Regeneration, which takes an approach that combines consumer insight, experience design, and brand strategy. So, he is our money perspective. Um, and Selassie, yes, Selassie Setfer, MBE for contributions to diversity in architecture, is a senior architect at Be First, Barking and Dagenham's arm's length development company, where she manages the Innovative Sites program. And she is also co-director of the pioneering group, Black Females in Architecture. So clap for <laughs> the Celeste. Did we clap for you? Did, did we clap for you? I'm not sure we clapped for John, sorry. <laughs> and then our final speaker is Hugh McEwen. Uh, who I don't know where I don't know where you are. Oh, you're there. Okay, great. So Hugh is co-founder alongside Katrina Stewart of Architectural Practice Office FSNM, an AJ forty under forty practice. And Hugh has been named a Reba Journal Rising Star for his work at Office SNM. And he is on the Newman Design Review Panel and the Essex Quality Review Panel. So welcome to all our speakers. Thank you. It's nice to be nice. Um, Cool. So I'm going to ask you all just a quick question to get the juices flowing a little bit. So, you know, not too long, just a kind of a little intro on maybe your position. So India, I wanted to start with you. A couple of months ago, you wrote an article about vernacular architecture for The Guardian, I believe, um, specifically New London architecture, which you described as the hegemonic default for housing development in London. So firstly, for our guests who might not be familiar, could you just briefly explain what New London vernacular is? And what do you think has precipitated its kind of prevalence across the city? Great. Um, yeah, I, mean, I should say that The Guardian asked me to write this article, so then I had to quickly develop some opinions on it. But um, it was actually a very interesting piece to research because it's something that I had observed from obviously covering architecture. I was at Dazeen at the time. And um, there is this kind of strange sameness to a lot of the developments that get approved in London. They tend to have um, brick, even if they're like very tall towers where you wouldn't necessarily be using brick. It's probably not real brick. It's probably stick-on brick. Um, they have a very distinctive facade where they will have quite like big but recessed windows. They look quite flat. And um, I sort of traced it back to the uh, patient zero, which turned out to be Boris Johnson, um, paused for everyone to be sick a little bit in their mouths. And he had kind of said that we needed like more buildings, yes, but um, could they all be like great background architecture? And um, again, I'm aware that I'm probably preaching to the choir here as a lot of you are architects, but it seemed to come from this um, kind of government desire to uh, build more things that look a lot like the things that we already have because we wouldn't want anyone's property prices to go down. Um, so we need everything else to look nice and it will blend in and be kind of non-offensive. And it's kind of turned into this strange uh, mode where architects who probably want to be doing 
like original exciting work are kind of having to prove that everything they build blends in nicely with everything that's already there even if the things that are already there might not be that great and it seems to be this very like external to me um sort of image and vernacular kind of apart from the new london vernacular tag um, is a word that comes up a lot in press releases that I get sent and I definitely had to kind of google it the first few times to be like what are they talking about um, and I kind of understand it as this like local language local dialect and that is kind of you are trying to speak the same language as the buildings around you and I definitely think that it's good to be sensitive to your surroundings but it's always seemed a bit of an oxymoron to me because language is very fluid and dynamic and it's constantly evolving and um, you kind of build on it and it grows. But the vernacular that we kind of, that seems to be prioritised by the government and I'm sure we're going to get into like all of their like various terrible commissions and the 11 housing ministers that we've had in like the past like however many years. But um yeah, that it's become quite a closed system. This language is just this kind of snake eating its own tail. Um, so that is how I see it. It sounds very different from the Wikipedia definition, though. So maybe I wasn't Googling correctly. Maybe I wasn't Googling correctly. So New London vernacular is perhaps the kind of like RP of uh, languages now. OK, cool. So Joanne, I wanted to move to you for our non-London perspective. I was wondering if you could sort of comment on what you think vernacular means outside of London and outside of the new London vernacular orbit and whether sort of lower land values help the pursuit of a regional vernacular. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear myself. Um, well, we spend a lot of time working on um, just the battle really to secure the housing principle in the first place. So once you get to the point where you're having a conversation uh, on a project about vernacular, you think you're in quite a good place, actually, because a lot of the difficult, complex stuff around resisting housing development as you know, you've got through that stage, so you, you kind of think you're on the home straight. But then we're into territory of design coding and what does that mean? And I think within local planning authorities, um, I don't know what it's like in London because I don't do any work in London, but there's a real um, shortage of design skill. Um, and a, an inability for uh, planning officers to have a, a sensible conversation about vernacular or design. And they're really reliant on design review panels, for example, uh, public projects, sending people in to, um, to support them on those sorts of things. I, I would suggest that very few places outside London are even having a conversation about vernacular and, you know, probably feel that they're battling with the volume house builders who really don't understand what vernacular means and even if they did they probably wouldn't be interested because they've got a dozen lovely houses on the shelf and you can have a mix of those and, and that's what they're going to do and that's the way that they're going to get the value out of the land um, and uh, the landowner kind of says well we would have liked to have had the design code but seeing as actually you can't can't afford to deliver that will just take um, what you're offering. So I, I think there isn't really a very good conversation about vernacular going on uh, generally across the country. Um, my practice is involved in one of the pilot projects for the National Model Design Code and there's some really interesting work coming out of that research around what the vernacular um, is in the part of the country that we're dealing with but I think that's the exception rather than the norm. 
So I'm sorry if that's a bit depressing. <laughs> no, so it's a wider point about just design vocabulary generally, actually. Okay. Um, and John, uh, I was wondering, um, maybe you could sort of speak to the kind of economics that determine vernacular architecture and, and, you know, are there benefits to the new London vernacular to the bottom line um, such that it's probably here to stay? I feel like I've been set up to talk about the <laughs> economics because it's not necessarily my, um, totally my bag, but I guess if I'm sat here as a developer and you want me to sort of you can answer standardisation. You can answer your own question <laughs> if you prefer. Uh, no, it's sort, of, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I think um, I remember David Luntz, who was at the GLA at the time that Boris Johnson was there, you know, sort of banging on about going to do this competition to try and find this new London vernacular, which actually I think... Um, Llewellyn, not Llewellyn Davis, what they're called. Um, oh, it's gone, name's gone. Won a little competition to, to do. And it, was, and it was incredibly, it was designed as this sort of process. But I guess they're always, you know, in those sort of political circles or certain circles sort of harking back to, you know, when we built lots of, and people say built stuff well, you know, but actually anybody who owns a Victorian or Georgian house probably would tell you they're not actually, <laughs> and not actually built that well. Um, but that sort of standardisation, that kind of, you know, we, you know we often, people often talk about Bath and the pattern books and all of those things that sort of come out of it and that sort of architecture. Um, but I guess reflecting on what I've heard just now, it's sort of interesting when, you know, you describe it as um, buildings built without an architect. Actually, everything we've just heard about has been built without an architect. You know, it's politicians deciding about architecture. It's um, local planning departments without the design skills to make a decision about it. Um, actually, are we getting the vernacular we deserve? You know, it's kind of sort of intriguing to, to me, you know, whereas, um, you know, it, you know, perhaps it, it, it is representing, you know, where, where we are at the moment in terms of our, you know, ability to, you know, make places. And I guess, you know, the, the, the schism or the break probably came, you know, when people stopped making their own homes for themselves, you know, in, in a sense, ever since we had builders and master builders and who then became developers and then architects sort of came out of that scene, there's been this slow disassociation from, you know, people being able to understand and make their own homes in the way in which they wanted to make them and the service provided by other people and you get what you're given or what the market would give you. And I think one of the things I'm really interested in is how can we get back to the former? Because then we might actually get a vernacular we deserve. Some interesting points, yes. Um, and I think linking onto that and non-architects are actually a place that is increasingly populated by architects, the local authority. So I wanted to bring in Selassie at that point. I mean, what's the local authority's role when it comes to kind of local design language? Um, I think it's, again, quite complicated because I can definitely um, relate to what you're saying about um, just the dynamics in, in sort of dealing with planners, we are in a unique situation in, in B First where the planners are in B First. The design team, we have a design team which I'm part of, which is in B First. We provide design advice to the planners in the CM capacity, I'm sorry, in the DM capacity and consultant capacity. So we are there, we're in it, so we're able to provide that design advice. But notwithstanding, you're, you're still in a situation where you're delivering for the council ultimately, and the council is a client, and they're seeking to develop affordable housing primarily for their local people and to get buy-in the from the local people there is a sort of 
conversation that needs to be had around vernacular, so to speak. Maybe not using the term vernacular, but a term to uncover what local people want and appreciate good architecture and good homes to be. And where you have a, a situation where majority of the borough, like 40%, is the Beckentry estate, which is built out of brick, which is cottage estate. It's a long, kind of difficult slog to get to a place where people can appreciate something that isn't what they're generally used to. And you can start to see that between that and the sort of um, direction where policy leads you to, you are drawn more and more to this sort of London vernacular. You are drawn more and more to the use of brick and you know the kind of key elements that end up sort of outputting this samey type of thing. Um, yeah, there's so many different factors at play there that from whichever angle that you're coming at it from, we're all seeming to end up at a similar sort of point. Yeah, and I definitely want to hopefully in this conversation go back to your point about how well a body like a local authority communicates with the public about what vernacular they find acceptable. So maybe that's something that we'll come back to. Um, and Hugh, I was wondering, so your practice, you've kind of developed a very strong vernacular, in a sense. You know, you have a very recognisable dialect, as it were, as a practice. So I kind of wondered what takes precedence, you know, kind of responding to a local vernacular or a local character or expressing your own? Yeah, I think, um, I think for us, uh, kind of uh, vernacular is really about finding difference and, of, and finding something that's special. Um, and that that kind of that that exists in lots of different places that we that we work um, because uh, you know buildings have been developed based on the materials that are available or the weather conditions or you know uh, systems of building um, which is really really amazing and and so I think we don't see vernacular as being something that is about sameness or and it and it kind of shouldn't be. I, I can see kind of how that how that ends up happening, you know, to do with you know considerations around quality or around around um, you know other things which maybe sh it shouldn't be influenced by, like scale, um, and and I think that, that that is problematic that there's this kind of fixed point of reference rather than actually having something that is that is um, is is kind of contextual and uh, contextual is a word that we find quite tricky. I think we're quite skeptical about. The idea of context, definitely, um, definitely very skeptical about the idea of context being inherently good, um, and so uh, for us, there's an opportunity to pick and choose the kind of best bits of of a location, of a of a of a place, and, and of the architecture that's there, and in that way, you you build up something that is uh, colloquial, is approachable, um, and you start to have something which maybe can be vernacular in that in that way. Um, and and I think you know so so I think that's our that's our kind of view on how you know how you might go about putting putting that together or how we approach it. But I think what's amazing and what would be great to also talk about is is this return to kind of uh, thinking about architecture and meaning and and language. And um, it is really interesting and starts to open up so many things of like what does what does brick mean to people? 
why, why do people think that brick has these sort of inherent char characteristics and what does concrete mean to people and what does wood mean to, be, mean to people? And I, I think it's amazing that kind of that starts to kind of come back onto the agenda. Um, so, yeah, it'd be great to kind of open some of those considerations up today. Mm. And, I mean, I, yeah, so vernacular has been just as much about difference as kind of sameness. I think that's a really good point. And also the idea that context-driven or responding to context isn't just like making it the same. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Okay, well, having heard their opening gambits, I'm just interested to know if anyone has got anything that they would like to contribute at this point. Come on, so many of you here. If everyone's too shy, I yeah, would like to chip back in. I was thinking it was really interesting what um, he was saying about what brick means, and I kind of think at this point it's almost a cargo cult that has developed around it, that people think that, oh, if it's made out of brick, it's, it'll be great. And that kind of goes back to what John was saying about um, these like London Victorian period buildings that hold their value, even though they tend to be like all fur coat, no knickers. Like They literally don't have foundations in a lot of cases but everyone thinks that they're great and like you want to buy a period property so you build something new that looks like a period property and it kind of um you know we've had like successive uh you know mainly tory mps get up there and say like oh this is what the people want people want beauty and we've come to this like very weird conversation about like beautiful buildings versus ugly buildings and we these questions of aesthetics that are essentially like dog whistles for people who want to kind of be like oh in the good old days when we built proper housing and the bin men were real bin men and um yeah but uh if you'd like to say something then i will stop hogging the microphone yeah. i think it's also to do with being risk averse and not be able to propose something that is different and you think I'm not going to get too planning, I'm not going to get too with this design. So I think people sort of set back to what's, what was already approved in the area, which is not only that, they don't really challenge. So going back to what you were saying, I think understanding the context is very important. Could be refurbishment, could be new build. But you need to understand the context and what the client wants to start. But then I think, as I said before, because the economics of the practice, you can't spend too much on preliminary and then planning stage. So you sort of go kind of fix recipe when it's going to work because it's done before. So I think it's well, yeah, part on us as well. Yeah, and I guess try to challenge. Also goes back to whatever the local authority are advising on that front as well, I guess, if they're also risk averse. Yeah, go on. Okay. So can I just, this speaks to a question, because I think, um, I just, I feel like what a lot of people are talking about is context. And so what is vernacular just context or is it something else? Because I'm a bit, I'm a bit confused because I feel like, you know, when you're doing, you know, planning, you, you, you look at the local context, but what is the local vernacular? I mean, is it an English vernacular? Is it a borough-wide vernacular? Is it a street vernacular? What, does it start? To, I don't know what it means. I think, I think it's problematic that we look to. I don't know. We. I think the fundamentals always seem to be missing somehow. Vernacular, to me, the dictionary definition of vernacular is kind of what was said before. It's. It's about, I guess, 
an expression of what a need of an area is. Like it's supposed to be something that's responsive to environment, so climate. Why are pitched roofs pitched in the Western world and it's not so in like the southern part of the world? Like why? I mean, they do do pitch roofs out there, but it's pointless. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think that speaks to what vernacular should be about. It should be sort of responsive. So yeah. And now we're moving to a, a space where we're more technologically advanced, so we can use, say, flat roofs and make them as effective as pitched roofs used to be, for instance. But I think ultimately it comes down to us going into a rabbit hole, really, about beautification, because everything is starting to be revolved around or led by politicians or other, other people who have been who are so far away from the fundamental question of you know okay you say people like brick but fundamentally you haven't spent the time to in interrogate what it is that people actually like and when you ask people it's not just about brick it's about something that's more deeper than that and unless you spend the time unraveling what that is you will always come back to a conversation in a rabbit hole that is about a beautification project of some kind and the use of brick at a very superficial level and not really ever get to the crux of the matter, which will then lend you to a vernacular that isn't about the kind of things that we think it's about. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense. Um, but yeah. That makes sense. A hand up. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I just wanted to kind of draw on the topics I'm hearing from different speakers. And to build on your question of context, what I was thinking, just coming to hearing the word vernacular, a lot of it, I think, to the non-architecture crowd means character. And that is when we go through, when you have top-down, well, top-down design guides coming in, which are devoid of local character. You have the conversation about materiality and locality. Um, for example, and then people being afraid of developing character and introducing character into buildings. I think the reason, or at least that is what I'm having at the moment, is that the reason people are talking about the vernacular is that they're seeing a lot of modern developments given by those, you know, the 10 house templates you have. And what they're lacking and what they want is a sense of character and a place. And that's what they mean by the vernacular, is that it's, well, it is materiality and it is the building, um, you know, the building standards you use. But it's more so a sense of this space is particular. And going back to even the Wikipedia definition, when it was talking about architecture, the vernacular architecture being built as something that's built by people, made by people, and not really imposed top down, then inherently it will have character of the person who built it. And then, you know, you see these wacky buildings or wacky places in London as you come from. People love them, but no one will be building them right now because everyone's very afraid to express it. You know, of course, we had some ups and downs because that's part of experimentation. But without that experimentation, you will not achieve, or I fear, we will not be achieving a new vernacular or something that can be equated to that. That is just... If that was a good point to bring in, John, maybe talk about some of your developments as part of Igloo. 
and perhaps being more creative than just trying to sort of respond, you know, trying to really think carefully about what the character is rather than just sort of matching in. Or we have someone else who's got a comment. (laughs) No, I I wasn't necessarily hearing my igloo hat on, so I'm not sort of in in the kind of that sort of groove, but I can be. Um, I don't know, I'm I'm constantly not going to answer the question you asked me because I'm sort of listening to what other people are saying. You know, I think... I think um, I think the beauty debate um, is a really interesting one because I would argue that maybe um, vernacular is a more useful term than beauty. You know, if, we, if we're actually trying to figure out how to make this sort of thing useful, because beauty is obviously incredibly subjective. I think with the vernacular, I think there's a kind of definitely a, an understanding that we probably could all have, even whether we're architects or not around it comes from a sense of um, local local identity, character, place. We could get into Norberg Schultz and talk about Janus Loci and all of that sort of stuff if, if we want to. But, but you know, I think, I think this kind of um, very often, you know, the, the, the traditional understanding of vernacular architecture, maybe even adding the word architecture on the end of it is odd, you know, because actually it's not architecture. It's, it's, it's building things that people needed you know, and and they were for probably always for one person or a family. You know, so actually, can can you do a vernacular for a tower? A t- you know, we're applying the word vernacular to tall buildings, but actually, that's almost the complete opposite of what you know a traditional vernacular building would be. You know, it wouldn't be for multiple people. It's for somebody who needed something. And they built something out of what was around them. And that's why it reflected either the materials that were available or the climate that they're in. So if you were to then say to me, okay, link that to the work you're doing, you know, that's the work we all should be doing. Because actually, if we're looking at um, living on a planet at the moment beyond our planetary needs, we are using materials from too far away. We're not actually building for the climate that exists at the moment, or even, and particularly not for the climate that's coming, we're not building that resilience. We've got no, and we're clinging on to this idea of some kind of um, aesthetic desire to be Georgian. You know, it's, it's completely bonkers. I mean, and, and the thing is that, um, you know, architects are, are just as much, in a sense, to blame in this sort of debate because, you know, we went off for a whole period in time and created things which were the zeitgeist of the time, trying to just use new technologies and find things. But actually, we completed a complete disconnect between the places we were creating and the places that people understood as home. And then we're fighting to get back to it, and we've, we've ended up in this sort of retrograde position where we think, oh, in order for people to understand it and like it, it's got to look like it came from the past. And, it, and it's sort of slightly bonkers. So I'd say that one of the things that we're doing at Igloo, you know, if you want me to sort of talk about that, is, is, then, is then can we you know, look at local supply chains? Can we look at local architects? Can we look at small practices? Can we look at sites and the topography and the nature of them and the orientation? Can we find ways to build resilience? In a sense, they're all the things which you know, we've been, some of us have been doing for years. Um, unfortunately, what I'm finding at the moment is... Um, the world's caught up with the language, but not the purpose. So everybody's talking this amazing game at the moment, but they're not really doing it. There's an awful lot of 
you know, wash, whatever we want, what word you want to put in front of that, out there. And it's making it very difficult for people who really want to do good stuff to do good stuff because we're fighting now against people who are just doing really quite bland stuff who are hoovering up the opportunities. And hoovering up the lingo as well. Yeah. I think you're being a bit harsh on architects there because there definitely are ways that you can build um, like a vernacular style that will suit multiple occupants. And in fact, there used to be some generosity there in terms of local government. I um, did a piece earlier this year where I organized a roundtable with some of the original members of the Matrix Feminist Architecture Collective who were operating in London in the 70s. And there was actually funding from the Greater London Council for them to sit down and talk to um, kind of local organizations or like social housing occupants about what they needed from the buildings that could be designed. And they were able to find this kind of generosity and develop a language that would work for kind of um, different groups of marginalized communities within London. But then Thatcher didn't like the councils having so much power and she kind of started breaking them apart and since then we've been sliding towards this like setting where I mean you can hear the amount of ideas that people have in the room and the the like the smarts that architects have to like solve these issues but the problem is that nowadays there's this weird kind of obsession with giving a fast track for beauty and all of these kind of strange commissions that I'd really hope died with Roger Scruton but alas like Gove seems to be digging them right back up again with this idea that there is the beautiful and there is the ugly. But um, I guess, like, the problem with vernacular is it seems to be so obsessed with the external aesthetics. And I think a lot of the problems that we're hearing from the people who live in substandard housing, like, there's been so many tragic cases in the past few months with kind of children dying horribly of respiratory illnesses. Um, that would be entirely preventable by architecture that had been like built and maintained properly is that the the aesthetics are entirely external and there's no there's no space in any of these plans that are being made by politicians for design that works internally for the people that are living there like we live in quite a cold damp country and yet there's no kind of um kind of you know like we don't have trickle vents and windows we don't have like communal drying rooms um yeah i don't know really where i'm going with that but i think like this this yeah. idea that architects got like too highfalutin and started designing like all these horrible modernist buildings that we all hate and wouldn't we really rather they design something nice that we all liked um is kind of a, the line that housing ministers that i've spoken to really like to trot out do you want my mic? I've got the microphone. <laughs> Sarah and Cordula. <laughs> Say the C word, actually. Carbon. <laughs> Which I think you mentioned. But um, I've got a watercolour at home. Not an original. Uh, and it's of the brick fields up on Kingsland Road. Which is about uh, ten minutes away. Uh, so when they built the big uh, early mid-Georgian houses on Kingsland Road in Hackney, uh, they dug up the soil from the field next door, and they fired it using straw, you know, they mixed straw into the bricks, and then they built it, and that's because they didn't have fucking oil, right? They didn't have, uh, they, they, they didn't have powered saws, 
you know, they, they ran out of trees in this country, like, just after Henry VIII, right? I mean, I, I think maybe in the Napoleonic Wars, they were still building ships from some trees. But, you know, we were getting Baltic pine from, from Russia, like, in the 1800s. Um, and, it, like, it's what you had right there. That's, that's where it comes from. Yeah, right. And that has got... Oh, look, I got the microphone. <laughs> that, you know, that's, that's where vernacular comes from. It comes from what's there right, right now. What do you need? Who, could, you know, who have you got to build it? And it, it was like phenomenally iterative process, which is interesting, which is what we don't tend to have. I mean, you know, these big tower blocks, you know, they, they came about in the mid-20th century. They were not iterative in that way. We're kind of, we're, you know, we're always building the future, whereas they were building the past. And I just like to, you know, that's, that's my point. That's it. <laughs> it's a good point, but also that it's not kind of old-timey way of uh, constructing because obviously there are, you know, m m uh, huge parts of the world where that is exactly the same. You know, you would build the brick kiln right next to where you're building your building. Yeah. Um, I know there were some hands up over there. Is it on? Oh, yes. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I always think in the world that perhaps, you know, many of us work in, in sort of very different areas, um, you really need to be optimistic. And, and actually, I'm getting this really strong pessimistic vibe in this room this evening. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit baffled by it because... You know, if we if we cast our eye over you know, the last hundred years, there is absolutely no doubt that a lot of what we're building now is much better than it was. The standards of space within homes, access to private gardens, access to public space. There is a much more democratic approach, and every, you know, over every sort of iteration of, of, um, I suppose, changes in our built environment, it's because it's a politically driven, financially driven, and you know, in the last twenty years, I suppose, maybe. A little bit longer than that. You know, there was a period where communities weren't engaged at all in what happened you know, to them. So you know, people who lived in um, Columbia Road had no had no say on those homes. They were just houses that were provided for them. Um, and so, so I think. It would be quite nice just to hear maybe from the panel of some sort of optimistic outlook um, of where we are at the moment, because I think it's just always very easy to say that ev everything, is, everything is bad, and uh, you know, we're always striving, working in the design industry, you're always striving to make things better, but I think it's also good to look a little bit at what, what's, what's good now, and what can we celebrate? So Joanne is going to sprinkle some optimism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think, interestingly, the, the initiative of government to 
pursue the national model design code and the, the pilot projects is to kind of set a template or a framework for um, bringing forward locally distinctive use that word hesitantly um, architecture and development is is not a bad thing to be trying to do um, how successful it will be I think is we'll only find out in time I I was interested to f hear about the reference to context and the idea of what what, is, what it actually is vernacular. And I would think I was expecting to hear um, people talking about regional variations in architecture and how buildings have responded to the particular circumstances of a location and why a building in Suffolk is different to a building in Yorkshire is different to a building in Glasgow and what were the people who built those uh, buildings actually trying to achieve at the time and I wonder if um, the National Model Design Code is a way of perhaps bringing a conversation back to that and understanding what people associate with when they talk about the place that they live and also I think that takes us into quite an interesting conversation about how we deal with climate change and how different locations within the country will need to respond differently to different the different impacts of climate change over time. So uh, to be optimistic, and I do agree, there is a tendency to be very pessimistic about this. Uh, we've all got the scars to, to prove that it's a really hard thing to do, uh, to get good quality development that's, that's relevant to the people who are going to live in it. But I, maybe the National Model Design Code is the start of that conversation, and maybe it's scope. We need to, those of us who are involved in it need to be careful that we're not just talking about aesthetics, but we are talking about climate change and context. And it's not just about architecture, it's about landscape and geology and water and vegetation and all of those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I think point taken. There is, there is some scope for optimism, definitely. Hello. Yep. Just say, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the conversation has gone too far to, to the aesthetics and the co context in aesthetics and what things look like. I think it's very much about typologies as well and how do we want to live and where do we keep building buildings with three-bedroom, two-bedroom units and what about, you know, they, families are much more sort of fluid than they might have been and how, you know, what is the typology, the context, context for how we live? And that architecture is sort of lagging a little bit behind, or the, the London vernacular might be lagging behind that, you know, including climate change, including all other contexts. But how do we want to live in communal spaces, etc.? So, yeah, um, I'll try and pick up on Sarah's challenge of um, of being optimistic. So um, we could talk about two buildings which are near each other, one of which you were involved with, which on Western Street. So um, two apartment buildings, two very different stories, you know, in a way. And maybe they offer clues to the differences between all the things that we're trying to identify here. So one is a solid space um, apartment building that they built on their own premises. Um, it's a, clearly a piece of architecture designed by... Um, two architects, you could argue, um, and, um, and really trying to push sort of typological um, form and give uh, residents a different way of living. But it's definitely a, for me, it's a product offered to the market. Um, next door, virtually next door, is Mark Lake Court, 
which Igloo Community Builders did with a community of um, residents who lived on that estate and worked with them to figure out what they wanted to live in and how could we build that for them. And in a sense, there is um, a way in which we could um, create a vernacular building of scale for individuals if we have the time or can find the time and cover, carve out ways in which we can collaborate and do and do that. And I guess my my point earlier, or my you know, just reflecting on the comments. And I'm talking as an architect, so I kind of feel like I can bash architects a bit. Um, is that um, it's not it's not the point really at which architects all went off on one. You know, we can all talk about Corbyn stuff, but maybe it's the point at which um, the mode of production moved from being something that people could engage with themselves, I think we've all spoken about, a bit about this, and something which um, became industrialised. And so we talk about the houses of Kingsland Road or any part of London, right? they're not vernacular. They are, they are products from master builders or builders or developers built to pattern books, created and sold to people. You know, that, 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 is, that is development, okay? You could argue it's not even architecture, it's, it's assembling components, okay, it's a product. And that in itself is quite interesting because one of the things that people have highlighted as a way to deal with issues that we have around procurement and climate change, et cetera, is modern methods of procurement, of construction. And in a sense, sy systemically, they were doing it then, just with different kinds of components. They were standardized and assembled and all those sorts of things. But that broke the relationship that people had with making their own home, which included, and probably more importantly, what was going on inside and the spaces they wanted inside the home. So I think, I sort of, you know, maybe we could have a, an argument with you, you know, the uh, Louis Kahn moment, you know, this is a brick, what do you want to be? Sort of, I don't think people spend a lot of time thinking about bricks. I think they spend an awful lot of time thinking about what kind of home do I need in order to get by? How am I going to feed my family? How can I afford the heating? All of those sorts of things. They are the important issues for um, most people outside of this room. Um, they're not thinking, ooh, wouldn't it be nice to live in a... You know, that, that's a kind of a, a, a point that you've reached where you can choose, right? And maybe, it's, maybe that word is quite important, ch choice. You know, there came a point where you couldn't choose anymore. You could only get what's given to you. And I think Sarah's made a compelling case that in the last 20 years we've got better at trying to find ways to give people agency, which is what some of these things are trying to do. But I think we also recognise that some of these things can be very misguided and misappropriated and abused. And I think there's a, you know, speaking to Andy, your predecessor, two hours ago, you know, he was, he was um, he's saying, yeah, I'm doing this design code for a whole borough. And it's like, wasn't the idea that they were supposed to be kind of like local and represent what those localities want. Said, yeah, but they just want to do one for the whole borough because then it means they can kind of tick that they've got a design code and move on, which is just another form of sort of top appropriating something which could be a really good agent for change and misappropriating it and using it to create more development control effectively. And I think those, that's where there is such positivity you know, and there, there are so many kind of opportunities when looking at the vernacular. Um, I mean, and it, it seems to be very, you know, prescient. This is weirdly the second talk today I've been to on vernacular architecture. So it, it, 
I'm just... Uh, where were our rivals? <laughs> yeah, I'm just reading off the notes. Um, but, but I think when we, when we kind of look at those, it's more the systems around uh, vernacular architecture, like, like you say, that, that, that there can be so many benefits, um, you know, whether that's supply chains, um, you know, I, I think community wealth building is a fantastic um, policy that we see uh, certain local authorities starting to adopt about kind of reinvesting money directly back into the, the communities that they serve. Um, and I, th I think that sort of the vernacular has an opportunity to, to kind of piggyback, piggyback on that or, or you know, be, be a method for delivery of that through things like, um, you know, repair and maintenance and, and, and care, you know, care of these these buildings and these these um, the, the, these spaces that that might might be kind of created. Um, so I, th I think yeah, all the networks that kind of go around uh, you know an idea of the vernacular could kind of be some of the most important. Well, yeah, the most important parts of of, of what it might actually deliver, um, as well as it being an opportunity to build out of things that are lower carbon than brick. You know, um, so I think I think there could be multifaceted you know benefits from from reapproaching the vernacular. Um, just maybe speaking to the point about maybe exploring what some examples are of without sort of tooting our own horn, I think Be First is doing a decent job at trying to, I guess, navigate some of these issues. I can't, I don't know whether there's going to, I don't think there's a Be First vernacular. Um, I think we're dealing with the different areas of our borough in hopefully the most responsive ways to the different areas. So the kind of developments that are happening in the Gascoigne estate, if anybody's familiar with Barking and Dagnum, are not the same as what's going on in the Beckentry estate, where there's very little opportunity to actually do much development anyway. And again, without tooting our own horn, yesterday one of... Um, the winners of the AJ Award was um, 200 back entry. And again, if you, it's night and day trying to compare that project with projects coming out of the Gascoigne estate. They're very, very different. Um, and that is because they're responding to context. They are responding to the need of the local community as well as the borough, but in different, very, very different ways the characteristics of the back and true estate will not even allow for something um, of higher density to have happened at um, the site of 200 back and tree. And if you ever have the chance to either go down the sea or a quick Google and have a look at the context of, of, of that project in back and tree, you would see that it is being very responsive to what is around it. And there was a lot of community engagement that happened to bring people in the local area along that journey. Um, because, like I said, there's not much development going there. What's there has been there for near enough 100 years. The, the Beckentry celebrated its centenary this last year. Um, and people are used to what they're used to. So I think it's about straddling between um, what the local need is, definitely being very responsive and conscious of local context, um, definitely being responsive of how you bring people along a journey into um, striving for better quality. Aesthetics on the outside, great, but on in, in, 
internally, how are you really um, navigating very serious issues like, you know, how are people heating their homes and how are you um, dealing with climate change and all these other kind of things. And I think that comes down through the work that Be First is trying to do across the whole entire borough. We're trying to be as sustainable as possible. In some places, we are exploring a pattern book approach, but that's not going to be applied every and anywhere. Um, we do need to build in volume. So, again, you're straddling between, yes, wanting to create these um, unique, bespoke things, um, homes for people that, you know, take people on the journey of being able to elevate themselves beyond where they are now, create agency, you know, incite joy and all of this. But you also need to deliver because we have an extremely long housing list. And so it's, it's a balance and act. So on the one hand, you're doing a pattern book approach and you're doing MMC. Um, but all the while you're dealing with sustainability, you're dealing with climate change. You're also dealing with the needs of the people. Ultimately, the, a lot of this, these houses are for the council. So therefore, they are their assets in perpetuity. And therefore, it's in the council's best interest to ensure quality from the outset. And I think that helps in a different way than the public sector to ensure the quality of what we're doing, ensure that all of these different cogs are turning in the right way. Um, and yeah, hopefully at the end of it, we come out with good quality and beautiful architecture. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And as you were speaking, I was also thinking about the House for Artists, another great BFAS scheme, which is um, responsive or speaks the language of its programme rather than the neighbourhood or, you know, and it's a, it's a new programme. I mean, it's not, the model exists elsewhere, as far as I'm aware, you know, communal housing for artists, and it's responded to that, which is why it's kind of its own, its own thing. So I think it's a really good point. Okay. Oh, we've got a question at the back. Yeah, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the Venice Charter in 1964, which was about um, conservation and heritage. And um, at that time, um, it broke away from the English tradition, which was much more about um, preservation. The Venice Charter was more about restoration and kind of restoring the old um, heritage assets and so forth, but being able to, to be modern, be contemporary, and be complementary to the old as well. And, King Charles, or Prince Charles at the time, was very outspoken about that and, and, and hated that aspect because it wasn't really in the English tradition. And then went on to, to do Poundbury, as we all know, which is possibly another example of um, successful use of vernacular, whether you like it or not. And um, it's a question that maybe goes to India, who kind of, I think, first broached this subject that took it into more of a positivity aspect, and possibly the floor, and possibly Joanne as well. But do you think that a lot of this vernacular is that we've got to get over our English or British kind of um, psychology and start thinking that, you know, our homes should not be kind of petit bourgeois um, abstract replicas of stately homes and power with their edifices and gardens and um, coded kind of um, um, signals that kind of highlight ownership. 
should we get beyond that? Are we dealing with a much more diverse, more interesting world now? And that we shouldn't be thinking so English? I mean, I'm aware that I was the one who is probably responsible for bringing the tone into the depressing range because I am the journalist, I am the critic. I once, uh, when I was the property editor of a local North London newspaper, got a piece of hate mail that accused me of being a Cold War polemicist. So, um, but there is nothing more radicalizing than reporting on the Hampstead and Highgate property market, I can assure you. Um, Yes, I mean, I think this goes back to what I was saying about this idea about, like, oh, remember when the bin men were great, like, this kind of particularly British attachment to misery, and that, like, oh, well, you know, there was ice in the window when I was growing up, so I was fine, like, you know, suck it up, princess, like, let's all, like, embrace, like, living in this, like, horrible situation together, um, which I think is, like, particularly miserable, and... Um, yeah, like this idea of like what is British, like a lot of um, the, it was interesting what you were saying about um, carbon and like vernacular and building with what you have to hand, like a lot of the brick I found out when I was researching this piece for The Guardian is actually imported um, because we don't make that brick anymore. I mean, I went down to like the Battersea um, project and they were all very excited because they had, um, they managed to like match the exact color tone of like all the 12 different shades of brick and they'd actually managed to keep the brick maker that had originally made the bricks from going out of business because they were about to go out of business which I think just says a lot about all of our like very weird supply chains um yeah I mean I don't know how you get people to kind of like release their death grip on like the Poundbury ideal and like the Englishman's house is his castle um I mean I'm trying not to be too negative I, I was kind of thinking about like okay what can I say that's positive and one thing that I do think is really exciting is um, that architecture is kind of in this process of gaining a class consciousness I'm really excited about all of the unionization movements here and also like across the pond in America and I think what's really exciting about it is that if you all unionize then you will have like more collective bargaining power with developers and you can stop this kind of like race to the bottom in terms of fees and also like try and like carve out more of that like generosity because I think everyone in like you know every time I speak to architects I'm like you you've got all the ideas like you know how we could like build this future that we want and like places that people want to like live in and work in and socialize in but you know there is these kind of like like barriers that everyone faces in terms of like what's gets funding what's gets planning what like can you like get developers to build and I think like architects get this like very unfair like image that you're the like only barrier between like everyone getting like their nice house that they want but no one you know it's really interesting like hearing what Selassie is doing and like actually talking to communities and like building them what they want and like I I don't think that's like what the government is saying when they're saying like, oh, we, we don't want any ugly developments. We want them to be beautiful. And if you're beautiful, you'll get a fast track. And like, what the fuck is beauty? Like, it is just like something that will look nice and like a conservative manifesto. It's something that's going to play to like the like 80 year old conservative voters who aren't going to like even live to see what happens like when these policies go through. I mean, like, I guess, like, one thing we could do is, like, I don't 
think like housing, like education, it shouldn't be a political issue. Like I don't think we should be like like four secretaries of state for housing since like it was introduced like this is mad like because they just come in and they try and like have a big dick waving competition with whoever was there last and it just we get nowhere so that's what i would do if i was king for the day i mean i was just coming follow up on that sorry alpa um i mean when cordula was mentioned typology and and when i was listening to you speak there india i was thinking of um, the you know a kind of follow-up question is is Peter Barber then a good example of being able to sort of um, do ugly stuff um, but is successful um, even though we don't see any of his plans? So Peter Barber is a weird one because I interviewed Kit Malthouse back when he was briefly housing minister um, and I had written something about the Building Better, Building Beautiful commission that he didn't like and so I got like taken on some like weird press junket where I got to watch him kind of go around development and um, he claimed he was late because someone got knocked off their bike and he was like saving them um, which I did kind of feel was just like something his press officer cooked up but he was like oh yes like all these like terribly ugly buildings but um, we're really not we're not like shitting on architects we're saying that we want them to like join together with us to like build more beautiful houses and you know Peter Barber Peter Barber what he's doing is really great so I mean, I mean, no shade to Peter Barber, but I was a bit like, oh, well, if Kit Malthouse is, like, holding you up as, like, the poster boy of, like, acceptable, acceptable, like, you know, it's it's kind of, it's still brick, but it's a bit quirky because he painted the front door red. Like, but, you know, if that's what, like, we can, like, get past, like, the conservative politicians, like, I think that is, like, good. It's kind of, like, maybe you know, a good, like, Trojan horse for getting, like, perhaps, like, more ideas and more difference into architecture. I mean, like, what's your take on Peter Barber? I'm feeling there's some kind of... Um, I was taught by Peter. Oh, I, I, I like Peter. Um, I, I like what Cordula was saying earlier about typology, and I was thinking of Peter in that regard, because, you know, he is, you know, uh, hold, trying to hold planners' hands and do things a little bit different, and... Um, show them that it's not all about having the front door in the garden and, you know, all those usual things. Um, as I said, I still haven't seen a good plan, or a plan. Well, all I would say as well about Peter Barber, and again, no shade for anyone, uh, is that they're, they're quite small scale, his, his schemes. So, you know, how do you produce that at scale? I think that's the other, the other point. Um. Yeah, I'm just going to keep this kind of architect bashing thing going. So to come back on, on India's point, because um, I, I think there's a real danger, which is architects have got all the good ideas, right? Lots of people out there have got some really good ideas, right? And the reason that architects don't get to deploy their ideas and they sort of talk about, you know, developers don't let me do what I want to do, my vision is compromised, whatever it might be, right? There's lots of reasons why lots of other people also don't get their want. I was, get what they want. I guess I was sort of thinking, I want my vernacular back. So this idea that Poundbury is built in the vernacular style, it's not just built in a style. It's not fuck all to do with vernacular. It's just a style, right? We're talking about vernacular as being um, a common language, you know, created by people for what they need, right? That has nothing to do with what we've been building in the last, you know, 300 years, you could argue. It's, it, it's become a process. 
right? And I think that we did a, we did a project recently or a bid with uh, UN Habitat, um, which was called Smart City Challenge for, um, for Bristol. And one of the things we looked at was how do we, and we, we worked with um, community, how, commun um, uh, community land trusts, um, different supply chain partners, ourselves, architects, looking at how could we create a more equitable way of creating housing. And Bristol were promoting this because they had some small sites. There were some big players in there and they thought we could get some big sites. They, never, they didn't have any big sites. They just had 300 garages. Okay? And we were thinking, well, you know, actually what you want to do is create something hyper-local for local people. Because if, they, if they're empowered to actually create homes on those garage sites, they're more likely to give permission for what they want. It doesn't matter what it looks like. You know, we've got this idea that if we make it look nice, that they'll all won't complain about it. But actually, if it's for them, because actually they could right-size into it and free up a home, to that, which could then be retrofitted, because they're not in it, and which could then go back into the system, which would then create, you know, housing for another family. You could create this sort of ripple effect with 300 tiny sites that, that could... Um, could make some real difference. And what we realized is there were kind of four key points to the way the system that we operate in at the moment. You could argue you've got supply chain, which is um, either goods or services. So architects, product manufacturers, all of these people, just it's supply chain, okay? And within that, there's loads of really good people, completely agree with India, loads of really good people. They have got some great ideas, but they haven't got a Scooby chance of getting them into the market because the market itself won't let you, right? And then you've got communities of people who want to build for themselves, and we've seen some amazing community housing projects, but they take so long to happen, right? So how can you facilitate that to make it go quicker? And then you've got Bristol with the land who could just pump prime this thing because all those sites are less than two million, and they could put them into the system at social value rather than real value, and you could start to use that as fuel to get something going. But the biggest problem is the money. It's the money and the warranties and the insurance that wraps around all of these things put a real block on actually trying to make this stuff happen. And then when you fold into that things like carbon and circular economy and looking at materials, you know, you go back to why don't we why can't we operate in the way we used to operate? It's all really interesting that, you know, all of these things that we look at as great buildings, I'm not going to use the word architecture, you know, that people used in the past for their purposes and then remade and used, we can't do that anymore because if you try and reuse a brick, the warranty provider go, oh, I can't give you an NHB warranty on that, sir. You're going to have to buy a new one. And, and believe me, like, at small scale, you know, in architecture and for private clients, you could do some amazing things. But as soon as you get to any scale where you actually want to get finance for something and sell it to a consumer, the whole system is set up in, as a linear economy driving you to use new shit all the time, which will probably have a, a relatively short design life because of all the pressures that come from land costs and everything else that wraps around it. And we were really trying to figure out what's the systemic change that we need Right? And, and somebody, actually, it was, um, it was David Burbeck, I think, put his finger on it for me. He said, the biggest problem we've got in this country is land. Okay, so there I just said finance, right? Land, because cause the cost of land so outweighs everything else, and it just keeps going up to a point where the building that's on it isn't worth anything. I mean, in fact, Alistair Parvin said, try and sell your new house, put it on the back of a lorry and see if someone wants to buy it. 
you, you pay somebody to take it away. All of that material is just waste because the land, you know, which was, I mean, go back to the feudal system and all these sorts of things and, and sort of take that apart. It just, it, it, it doesn't allow us um, access to what is actually, what we talk about here is almost like a basic human right for a vernacular. And I don't know what that looks like because it would be different for everyone because it's what they need to survive. I think vernacular could be the, uh, a word that we could take back and use as a way to define what is it that you need in order to do what you want to do. And this is the use the word architecture because architecture for me is very different. This is the space or the building in which you need to do it in. And I think that could be a really interesting sort of reappropriation of the word because it's almost back to its original meaning, which is, you know, what's needed, um, what's local, what, you know, well, anyway, I sort of ran out of steam there. But you get the idea. We get the idea. Yep, we've got a... Have you got, have you got a mic? Yeah, can you hear me? Um, well, it, my, my point was um, kind of relates to what you're saying about land value and um, the, the fact that because there are, you know, self-builders, people who are interested in just using what they have around and one of those things is not land, like they do not have land lying around. And so I was just um, wondering whether the uh, vernacular of today are buildings which don't have any land. So I'm looking at canal boats, vans, tiny houses, uh, do we include squatters? I, I wonder whether the, the, yeah, the vernacular architecture of today doesn't have any ground. <laughs> I, d I just want to pick up on that point about land and how you get the land it is on. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Um, how you get the land to build at scale. And there are examples of that in the UK. If you take Milton Keynes, for example, the land was acquired by the states at existing use value plus a bit of hope value. So it wasn't housing land value. And, you know, thousands of acres were acquired for the purpose of building at scale to solve the housing crisis. And part of that journey was all about innovation and experimentation. I can't imagine there were many conversations at the time about vernacular because the Development Corporation gave huge opportunity for architects and all sorts of designers to experiment. Um, but the, the key to all of that was actually the cost of the land and the fact that it was acquired at existing use value. And until we can overcome that problem, we can't really solve the housing crisis. And I don't think this government will ever have an appetite. And I don't think a Labour government will actually ever have an appetite to go back to that sort of radical solution that we need. I was going to get you to explain land promotion. I've got two mics. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, I just wonder, like picking up on John's proposal, um, is, is part of what we need to do to just stop abusing the word vernacular. And I don't know, it seems like there's two aspects of this. One is aesthetic and another is more around what, what you might call like the means of production. So all the things um, in the process. 
So yeah, I'm just wondering if we should, if that should be a sort of front for action is actually in definitions and words and should it be called New London style? Um, I don't know, or yeah. Um, yeah. So choose our words with care. Yeah, I quite like what um, John is kind of proposing that we could actually use the word vernacular to mean this kind of architecture of the commons. Um, did you, who wants the mic? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, uh, I think whenever anyone says vernacular to me, it immediately is red flag because there's always some sort of other agenda behind the vernacular. It's really interesting that vernacular tends to begin around like 1700 and then it sort of ends at around 1900 and then we don't really say anything about what happened after that or before that. Um, there's this really amazing documentary about the Gorbals estate in Glasgow. I don't know if anybody is familiar with it, but it was made prior to the demolition. And they went, they went back to into the people who'd lived in the estate and who'd been rehoused there from like slum clearances. And the people who lived in the Gorbals clearly loved the homes they were given by the council and the space that it had and the amenities that it had and the capacity that it had for personalization. But because the Gorbals didn't necessarily fit with an agenda at the time for what was good and what looked nice, it was you know demolished and we wasted all of that concrete and steel and everything and all those people lost their homes. So whenever councils talk about vernacular, it's always, I mean, this sort of policing of who gets to live where and what sort of mode you should live in. Having lived in a like village full of like back-to-back -back terraces when I was growing up, which was built by the mine company that owned our village, they also built a school out of guilt because they accidentally killed a load of children once. But people romanticize this type of architecture. Um, like, oh yeah, the beautiful terraced houses, like those lovely, generous plans when actually it was 12 people to a room and really kind of miserable, distressing conditions. I think we have to stop talking about vernacular and it has to be about space standards and about how people can have better, more fulfilling lives and the things that we create. And it, I think the burden is almost on us to reshape the conversation about what actually matters. The style of the thing doesn't matter. I couldn't care less what the style of the thing that I make is. What I care about is like if the toilet is big enough and whether you can you know, use the bathroom properly. And that's not the place where, the, where this conversation's coming from either, right? If we were having a discussion about like vernacular plan forms and about how we live in the future and the nuclear family, I think that would be maybe more productive. Mm. Uh, but then it's how do you like cut through the noise mm. of the Building Beautiful Commission and all those other people who are obsessed with the skin and not what's inside. But yeah, I don't know if anyone has any <laughs> any thoughts on that. I think that I think that's really fantastic. Kind of thinking about vernacular in the future and kind of directing it that way rather than kind of backwards. And I think you know to go back to India's India's point um, about kind of language. I think I think it's really you know aiming for something that's approachable and has has that kind of you know personality and human you know human led design human scale to it. Um, you know I think I think. That these ideas of beauty are really, you know, feel like 
just another opportunity to kind of demonize concrete and 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 estates and and that that's kind of really problematic um so actually to kind of look at something and see well how can that um how can this future vernacular then start to target something else you know how could you start to have you know uh, spds and design codes that look at hemp and look at um you know external wall insulation that is clad in i don't know dare i say it pebble dash you know sort of things that could actually start you know challenging these um these ideas as well so i think i think yeah there, there's it would be great if if that vernacular idea kind of flipped and just went into the future instead very good point thinking about vernacular as a future so we are getting towards time and i was just wondering if i could invite the panel to kind of give us your last summarizing words whether you take the position that you came in into the room with or whether you have taken a different position or a different thought on uh, as a consequence of this debate so maybe i could start with india yeah i mean i think what you were saying like I'm doubling down on my position that it should be more about what is on the inside, um, that we need to be talking more about, yeah, like what are these homes actually giving the people that live in them versus like what are they giving the people that will look out onto them? I mean, I'm not saying that we should start like building things that look hideous, but I think it is really important. I mean, I grew up in like British army quarters, which were like, ridiculous I mean my family carried around like our own shower head for 10 years because the bathrooms weren't fitted with showers so you just had to like bring your own and I just find that so funny because like England is so like oh yes the troops we love them and it's like you have no idea what people are actually like living with who are like service families um yeah I just really hope that we can like find a way to push back against this obsession with beauty, this obsession with aesthetics, and really like steer the conversation towards like how this like you know how buildings function for the people that live in them. How can we like design an architecture of the commons? I mean, I love like Roger Zagolovich and his like we should all be developers manifesto. I like, unfortunately, with, like, the land situation, unless we have, like, full revolution now, it's going to be a bit tricky to, like, overcome. But I think having that conversation about, like, what people want from their houses versus letting politicians kind of, like, repeat all this garbage about how everyone just wants, like, their nice little house with a garden, um, that is what I'm hopeful for. I'm trying to be positive here. Great. So there's a language of purpose over... A language of aesthetics, I guess. John? Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I think um, I just want to shout out to the guy who said we should be looking at housing with no land. I think that's, there's, there's a clue in there. So for me, um, things like community land trusts, which freeze land at a particular uh, social value, which kind of neuter it and stop it from being um, speculated on is, is, a, is a sort of a clue. And... Uh, some of the conversations um, I have in my fascinating life is with sometimes with funds looking at you know actually is there a way to instead of you delivering ESG with British land why don't you buy land and put it into a land trust and hold it there because actually you could deliver more social value that way and then put it back out into the market but not to be speculated on to be used because if you can do that, then the value of the materials that are on that land can be held, and therefore, because they're precious and more rarefied because of it, 
we were using them better. And so actually the showerhead story is a really interesting one because in Germany where, you know, people, well, in Europe where people rent more, they take their kitchens with them. You know, they take things with them. They've got stuff which is sort of got memories and all those sorts of things because it's the stuff that goes in their home that they look at every day. And in a sense, the buildings, you could argue, could be relatively simple and spacious and robust because it's the things that you want to take with you or from place to place which, which might become more important, you know. You know you know, so I think there's some sort of, and, and so to that extent, you know, one of the other models that we've been looking at with, with Igloo is, is, is um, actually, um, you know, everybody's moaning about or talking about, you know, build to rent, you know, because it's this big institutional thing. But actually the rental model taken, looked at in a circular way is really quite interesting because if the, if the, if the stuff the house is, or, you know, the home is made of is never really bought, so I'm not talking about renting a house from somebody, I'm talking about renting the materials from somebody who's then responsible for those materials in perpetuity. And actually our buildings, our homes are just an assemblage of these things that come together at points in time to meet our need at that point in time. When we don't need them, they go back into the supply chain to people who know what to do with them. Because at the moment we just have a system where we buy and consume loads of materials and at the end of their life, because we don't really know what to do with them, they end up as waste. And, and there's got to be a better way than that. So I actually think, you know, the new, the new vernacular of the future could be a circular one of um, materials which we trade and share and use to, um, to be productive on land which is not speculated over um, in order to generate wealth for the few rather than um, homes for the many. Thanks. Um, I, I think as a planner, the, the final thing I'd want to say is around the relationship between planners and architects and the opportunities for collaboration. I think you know, when you're dealing with local planning authority planners in particular, it's important to remember they are completely beleaguered and they are worn down by politicians, they are worn down by regulation to do with habitat and nutrient neutrality, they're terrified of... Um, the prospect of judicial review setting their programme of delivery back. Um, they don't have a lot of time to think about design and vernacular and all the really important stuff that they probably became planners for in the first place. So I, I think the more you can help them to sort of rekindle that enthusiasm and feel enthusiastic about good housing design, um, that's, that's a really good thing to do. So. Um, I don't think I've changed my mind on my position. I think <laughs> um, I came in thinking that we, for some reason, the industry likes to just use words, like just throw words around here, there, and everywhere, like use a lot of jargon, and then that we, everybody else outside catches onto it, and then they use it, and everybody's using the word inappropriately, but everyone's still using the word. I think of sustainability and I think of green and I'm like green sustainability everyone's just saying whatever doing whatever and actually not doing anything about what the thing is actually supposed to be I mean if you ask somebody what does sustainability mean they'll do this and never actually get to the point and I think it's a similar thing with this word vernacular everyone's kind of like oh maybe it's this or, or maybe it's that and we're all just dancing around this thing not actually really dealing with what vernacular vernacular fundamentally actually 
means. Um, we've talked about beauty, we've talked about all sorts of stuff, and just dancing around the issue, really. So I think the point made about, um, or points made today about um, community, about redefining what um, is important um, around this topic is, is, yeah, I think very poignant. I mean, I could go on a soapbox talking about um, how it all just boils down to a capitalist mentality and why we're here is all just because of capitalism, really, talking about all of this stuff. Um, yeah, and if we're able to do the kind of thing that you're talking about um, um, and the examples given by Igloo, then maybe we can have a more useful discussion about what that looks like. I like that idea of a new vernacular being something that is embedded in more of a um, circular economy type of thing because what is important right now is you know climate agenda um, um, meeting people's actual needs um, you know overcoming fuel poverty you know these very important things and we could do that in a way that becomes a sort of vernacular vernacular meaning you know what is locally understood what is locally um, adaptable what is locally meeting needs we could do that and that might be really interesting and ultimately what comes out of it would be a, a type of architecture or type of spatial design or whatever that somebody or people in 200 years can be able to identify as a kind of vernacular of this time because it was responding to X, Y, and Z. But right now, I think, yeah, we're just lost in the source of throwing words around. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, and yeah, I think um, I think to come back to that idea of language, I think really it's coming, uh, it's using this as an opportunity to rethink about having conversations more broadly with people about the process of how buildings kind of come to be, um, and and trying to be a you know make, making that process approachable and and involving um, so that so that then through that through that through that process that becomes more understandable, um, you're actually engaging people with the outcomes of new buildings and, and retrofit of existing buildings. Um, so yeah, I think the vernacular is that opportunity to re-look at opening those conversations up and making them much more approachable. So which one was the best talk? You said you'd been to two London vernacular talks today. This one, of course. Good, Good to know. Well, he hasn't had his dinner, so maybe he won't get any if he says the wrong says the wrong thing. Um, so I just want to thank you for that. I mean, it does sound like there is a bit of consensus. I think it sounds like we think the term vernacular is not very helpful, that perhaps it's just a bit of jargon that gets thrown around and what does it mean? And also that actually what we're talking about, what we think is really important is need and, you know, what is it that actually people need? What's the product that people need or, or not product? Maybe we shouldn't be terming it as a product. And that land value is ultimately the killer. And then the last thing that I wanted to say is, speaking as we are in a capitalist society, does anyone know what happened in the football? <laughs> Wales lost. Well, losing three, three. Should I say it? three nil? Oh, sorry. Just, just to hijack. I have a lot of drinks. Just, just to hijack this. Um, the guy in the corner with the really attractive tash um, basically said they built the school out of guilt. And I thought that's really interesting. Could be talking about things being built out of brick. Um, and uh, and then it's like oh, guilt. And I thought, well, maybe my sum, my actual summary is, rather than building for greed, we need to build for need. 
you know, because I think that seems to be the thing that we've been talking about a lot tonight, which is what do people actually need in order for them to live their lives? Building for need. I don't think I can better that. So I just want to say thank you to all the panellists and thank you to everyone who asked the question and everyone who listened so nicely as well. So And uh, thank you to Ombra as well. So big round of applause for everyone, I think. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.